Turn to John chapter 17, join me there, this glorious chapter of John's gospel, John 17. This chapter is really the holy of holies in the book of John. We read in this text of our Lord Jesus speaking directly to his Father in prayer for his apostles. It is the longest recorded prayer of the New Testament, and it is the most glorious and powerful prayer ever prayed and ever penned for our edification. In this prayer, we see a window opened into the divine and perfect communion that exists in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit communing together. We see evidence of that here and how the Son speaks with the Father about us. It's an amazing joy for the church of all time to to listen in, as it were, to see and hear the, the heart of our Savior as he talks with his Father about his disciples. It's almost like putting a a spiritual stethoscope on our Lord and listening to his spiritual heartbeat for you and for me. As we listen in, what is it that we hear? Well, we have seen already that, first of all, Jesus prays for himself, and namely, he prays that he would be glorified and, and would be returned to the glory that he had before he came in the incarnation. And then he prays, secondly, for his apostles, the 11 men before him in the upper room. He prays for their preservation and for their purification. And we learn as as he prays for them a lot of why Jesus prayed. We learn that there were reasons compelling our Lord to bring them to his Father. And therefore, we were instructed about why we should pray, why we, we also should be compelled to seek our Father's grace. And then we see in verses 20 to 26 that our Lord turns his prayer to those who will believe in him through the apostles' testimony, namely the church of all time, and most specifically us in Newton Bible Church. There's much to learn in this chapter about our, from our Lord about prayer. The things which concern him most come oozing out of him in this moment as he communes with his Father. He stares down the reality of suffering on the cruel cross of Calvary, and as he looks down the reality of suffering, he also looks across the table and sees these men who have, have yet uh, faithfully, yet flaw, in a flawed way, followed him and are still with him. And he is moved in that moment to pray for these men. He's leaving, he's told them, but they are staying. He says, you're staying, but you're not going to be orphaned. I'm going to send my spirit to you, and he'll guide you in all truth, and he'll empower you for all ministry. But that does not prevent our Lord from praying for them because he's going to send the Spirit. He does not then say, you'll be fine. He's compelled by that reality and his soon departure to pray for these men and to pray in accord with the will of his Father. And so what does he pray for them? He's concerned for their souls and therefore for their effectiveness as his servants. And so he prays for their preservation and for their purification. It's common lingo in the church, isn't it, to say, I'll pray for you? Or to have someone else, after you've told them something you're facing, to have them say, hey, listen, I'll pray for you. Or at least we send the praying hands emoji in the text, right? (laughs) Communicates we're going to maybe pray for them. At least we thought about praying for them in that little emoji. It's common parlance to to say that kind of thing to one another. In fact, I, I bet if you look back at your text messages or your emails or 
thought back to your conversations with people in the body of Christ this past week, you would probably think of at least one, if not several exchanges in which you said to someone or they said to you, I will pray for you. Well, what is it that you pray about when you say that? Which, by the way, it's most helpful. I have found to pray immediately, to pray right then. When I say I'm going to pray for somebody, so many times I have said that and failed to pray. And so the thing that I have found helpful is just to do it immediately and, and to say, I'll pray for you right now, so that they know I'm praying now for them in that moment, or stop what you're doing and pray with them if they're with you in that moment. But what is it that we pray for? What do we pray about? Well, we pray for safety while they travel. We pray for for healing for them or for someone in their family. We pray for wisdom for doctors to know how to help them. We pray for financial provision for them. We pray that they can be a testimony through it all to the lost in the situation. We pray any number of things. We pray for the Lord to be with them and to comfort them and to, to help them. And those are all good prayers to pray. But I ask you, how does Jesus pray for his disciples as they stare down the barrel of their own suffering. Because his departure is going to put them at the focal point of the evil one's attack. And the commission they're about to receive from their Lord is going to put them immediately at odds with all of the world. And how does Jesus pray for them in light of their coming suffering and persecution? Well, he prays for them to be preserved, to be kept in the Father's name. And then he prays for them to be sanctified in the truth. So I think if this is our Lord's top two concerns, maybe these should be ours as well. Oh, we not learn something from our Lord here about the priority in prayer. That the first things we pray for one another is for our preservation by our Father and for our purification by his word through whatever it is we're praying about. Last week we saw Jesus' prayer for our preservation. This week we consider his prayer for our purification. John 17, starting in verse 11, Jesus prays this to the Father. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Having prayed for his disciples' preservation, he's now concerned about their sanctification. And in the mind of Jesus, these two things go hand in hand. These men will be preserved as they are purified. Their continual progress in sanctification is part of the means of their preservation. Now, there's more to God's preservation over your soul than just your purification, but a major aspect of you being preserved in the name of the Father is your sanctification. 
that you are purified by the word of truth. These first disciples show us the way here. As Jesus prays for them, so too we are to pray for ourselves and for one another. It will not surprise you to know that I am no chemist. I know a few, but I am not one. I took chemistry once, and I think I passed the class, if I remember right. Of course, that does not make me an expert, nor any of you probably. Jerry's not here today, so we can't ask him if these facts are true. You can ask him later. With the help of Google, I learned a little bit more about the purification process of the world's strongest metal. That currently is, that metal that we currently know to be the strongest is tungsten. It's the the king in the science world of the strongest metal. It's found embedded in, in rock underneath the earth's surface. And it has to be mined out, and then after being mined out, it has to be separated from its ore, and then these minerals have to be purified so as to create tungsten. I'm told by Google and the random website it took me to that most tungsten ore has about 1.5% at most of, of actual tungsten minerals in it. So you have this rock, you have a little bit of tungsten in it, literally a little bit, and you have to break up the rock and somehow get that separated, and then you have to purify the tungsten through a process of uh, treating it with chemicals and then heating up that compound with either carbon or hydrogen gas. And through that, you you arrive at the pure metal of tungsten. Why do I tell you that? So you know that I'm a good Googler? Of course not. It's to illustrate what we see in our text. This this is what Jesus is praying to happen for us. The, The tungsten ore is broken and purified for the purpose of making it useful to humanity. It does absolutely nothing valuable to us buried underground. But it has a lot of value as it's mined out, extracted, and then uh, ground and purified with heat, melded together, making the strongest metal known to man. Because of its strength and its, its high melting point, it's useful in aerospace applications, electrical applications, and and military applications of which they can't tell us what they do with it. The point of it is that left to itself in the earth, it's impure and not useful, but through the process of purification, it becomes effective. You see the carryover, right? For you? This is what Jesus is praying for his disciples in John 17, that they would be purified so as to be useful. This is the heartbeat of your sanctification, to be set apart to useful service. And so Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I want you to understand what Jesus exactly is praying for. So let's dig in a little bit and find out what does he mean when he prays for their sanctification? Well, we learn that sanctification is God's work. It's God's work. That's what we see right away in his first petition, sanctify them, Jesus says in verse 17. He doesn't stop the prayer here and and turn to the disciples and say to them, listen, I am telling you, sanctify yourselves. Be holy. Figure this out. Here's the commands. I've been with you. I've given you all my words. Now it's your job to make yourself sanctified, set apart, and pure so that you can be useful. No, he prays for them. Now there's human effort involved in our sanctification. But it is first a divine work before it is ever a human work. God is at work to sanctify our soul. This is why Jesus prays to the Father for these men. 
This is why one of his main concerns as he approaches the moment of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, that these men be set apart by the Father. He knows they're not ready by themselves. He knows they cannot make it by themselves. He knows they will get chewed up and spit out by the world. He knows the Father must preserve them and purify them so as to use them. The idea of someone or something being sanctified, or the Greek term is hagiadzo, to to be made holy or set apart. The, The idea is almost an entirely biblical one. That Greek word is not found in in non-biblical texts of the first century time period. It's a uniquely biblical word meant to communicate that we are set apart to the Lord for his service. It's used in Jeremiah 1 and verse 5 in the, the Old Testament Greek translation known as the Septuagint. It uses this same word that Jesus uses for sanctify in John 17, 17. In Jeremiah 1, 5, the Lord speaks of his special consecration of Jeremiah the prophet in the womb. So he says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I hagiadzo, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. So in God's economy and his providential wisdom, he put his finger on Jeremiah and said, You are mine. Before he was ever alive, before he ever did or said anything in the womb, God set him apart, consecrated him, for a very uniquely difficult, hard ministry as a prophet. Maybe the hardest of all of the prophets in the Old Testament. It's also used in Exodus and Leviticus to speak of the temple utensils and of the the, uh, sons of Aaron in particular as being set apart for public worship. And in order to be set apart for public worship in the temple, they, they obviously then had to be purified for their service. So first they're set apart by God, and then they're purified for God. So God puts his finger on Aaron and says, you and your sons are going to be my priests in my temple worship. That's setting them apart. He's sanctifying them. But uh, inherent in the idea is that they have to be pure in order to be servants in the temple. And so it's, they're made holy as they are set apart for God's usefulness. This is what Jesus is praying for, for his disciples, that they be set apart by the Father and then sanctified, made holy by the Father. This is obviously then our Lord's intention, not just for these men, but for every one of his disciples in every age and in every place, that we also would be sanctified by the Father in heaven. This is first God's work accomplished by God's power, which is why Jesus prays about it. If it was something you should do, then he didn't need to pray about it. He needed to tell you what to do. But instead, Jesus prays and asks the Father to do this work in them. So it it begins with God, not with our own efforts. Our efforts for holiness and usefulness that we need to make are are there, but they're not the, the efforts of our own initiation filled with our own power and our own spiritual strength. Rather, they're they're grace-initiated by the cross work of Christ. Your redemption initiates you into this consecrated reality that you're set apart by the Lord. And then you're moved along by that grace to be purified, to be more useful to the Lord. 
When we think of sanctification, there's two ditches to be avoided, aren't there? At least two I'm aware of. If you're going to stay in the, the middle road of sanctification, there's two ditches to avoid, one on each side. On the left is the ditch of let go and let God, in which we, we know that it's his work, and so we just sit passively by and, and just let God do his work and, and make us holy. Go after it, God, and make me holy. And we just sit and wait. That's one ditch to avoid. On the other, ditch, on the other side, on the right, is the ditch of, of get up and get after it in which we know, hey, we're commanded to be holy as God is holy, 1 Peter 1.13, so we rely entirely upon ourselves to make ourselves holy, to cleanse ourselves. This blends into or, or creates often legalism in our hearts or absolute, complete destruction of our soul because we can't do it. We're despairing before the Lord because we can't be holy like we know we should be, and then we question our standing before the Lord because our, our practice of holiness is struggling so much and we think it all is dependent upon my effort, my ability, and my initiation. But sanctification is God's work brought about by His overflowing grace. And that grace compels us and trains us, as we saw in Titus 2, verse 11 to 14 last week, last Sunday night. It trains us to put off sin and Put on righteousness to be more holy and therefore more useful. This is why Paul will say in his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. You remember what he says there? Therefore, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, Paul says. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, speaking of the other apostles. Though it was not I, he says, but the grace of God that is with me. You see how the grace of God is first, is primary, is the powerhouse of Paul's sanctification and usefulness. And as he was empowered by grace, the goodness and overflowing kindness of God, he was useful to be a hard worker in that grace for God's glory. A few years before John Newton passed away, John Newton, that famous slave trader who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, rescued by the kindness and grace of God from his slave trading, and, and really his own slavery to sin and Satan. Then became a very effective pastor for decades. Ministered with William Cooper, the other great hymn writer. Was so effective in England, became a lighthouse of God's grace. As he came down to the last few years of his life, he lost his sight. He could no longer see. And so at the, the morning meal at breakfast, him and his family and whoever else was there gathered on the table one day and read a text, and it was expected that then John Newton would, would say a little bit about the text, kind of exposit it from his memory in his old age. Well, the text for that morning was 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10, the one I just read to you. By the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul said. Newton, that former slave trader enslaved to sin, sat there for a few moments thinking on the text, and, and then he said this, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon I shall put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what 
I am. Beloved, sanctification is God's work in you. It is God's work by God's means. That's what Jesus prays next in verse 17. This prescribed avenue for accomplishing sanctification, according to Jesus, is the word of God. So he prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You could also translate that little preposition in as by. And I think that's the intention of our Lord here. It means, I think, both things. That these men would be sanctified in the realm of the truth and by means of the truth of the word. So this is how God set us apart for himself and how he cleanses us to be useful to him. He sets us apart in his truth and then he cleanses us by his truth. And this sanctifying power is found in the truth that is the word that's applied to the mind and heart of the disciple. Did you notice that there's a singularity of means here in Christ's prayer? So he doesn't say sanctify them by the word and by experience and by failure and, and by instruction of others and on down the list. And he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Friend, you're, you're not made holy by blessings, nor are you made more righteous by trials inherent in the trial. You're, you're not even made more sanctified by deeply spiritual experiences where you feel extremely close to the Lord in some given moment of his kindness. You're not sanctified by some connection to a local church and attending the gatherings of that local church. You're not sanctified by your own efforts or the efforts of someone else to to make you holy, namely in your home, your dad and mom. You're not sanctified by our failures, Even though we might learn from them, we're not sanctified by them. There is one means to our sanctification given by our Lord, and that is the Word of God. When you consider the reality, the nature of Scripture, how does Scripture describe itself? How does it lay before us its own nature? We find a lot of helpful analogies and descriptions, symbols, that connect to the Word throughout Scripture that help us know the nature and the power of Scripture itself. So in Psalm 12 and Psalm 119, Scripture is equated to precious metals. That the Word is is far more desirous than gold, even fine gold. It's way better. It's, It's incalculably more worthwhile. 1 Peter 1, we're told that it's like the seed, which is is planted in the good soil of our soul, prepared by the grace of God, and it it brings forth regenerate life, newborn life. And so the spiritual life you have in Christ is there because of the seed of the Word of God. He goes on to say that it also then is the implanted Word which nourishes our soul. So it grows up into fruition in us and produces fruit out of us. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, namely verse 26, Paul says that Christ washes us, his bride, with the water of his word, makes us purified so we can be his holy bride. We're also told that that the word is is like the, the abundant river flowing from the throne of God in Revelation 21 and 22, of which we drink and are well supplied as we drink, especially of the living water of Christ, our soul is forever nourished. James 1, 22 to 25, the word is likened to a mirror 
by which we examine the inner recesses of our soul and get to know the real and true us. We see ourselves most truly when the word of God is before our face, showing us ourselves most surely. The scriptures then are also equated to food which nourishes and sustains our inner man. Was it not Jesus who said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, quoting Moses in Deuteronomy? 1 Peter 2, we're told to to go after the word like a newborn baby longs for the, the pure milk of its mother. So you too, as a Christian, should long for the pure spiritual milk of the word and thereby be nourished with it. Hebrews 5, the writer of Hebrews says that the the word has meat in it that only the mature can chew on. Only those who have the the spiritual teeth developed through growth can handle the meat of the word and and chew it down and digest it and be benefited by it. The Bible is like a, a garment of truth in the book of Titus, which is to adorn our lives, shape our behavior so that we adorn the doctrine of God making known our connection to Christ through our behavior. Psalm 119, 105, it's a lamp that shines on our path and and guides our steps, shows us where we ought go and where we ought not go. Psalm 119, 130, the word enters into the soul of the innocent and the simple-minded and unfolds its truth so that we see more light and understand better the mind and heart of God. In Hebrews 4, we're told that the word of God is like a sword, that cuts down with surgical precision to the dividing point of soul and spirit. The sword can cut you to the innermost part of you like nothing else can. With surgical precision, opening you up for spiritual surgery to remove spiritual cancers in your body with the precision that only God's Word can have. Ephesians 6, we're told that this sword of the Spirit is a offensive weapon against the wiles of the devil as we fight in the spiritual battle in this life. The prophet Amos has shown a plumb line by which the nation of Israel will be judged. That plumb line is the word of God. It is the standard for all that is right and wrong. In Jeremiah, God likens his word to a fire which judges and consumes and a hammer which falls in judgment upon his apostate people. Beloved, it's no wonder then that the scriptures are the prescribed means of our spiritual cleansing and growth. What else do you need? If the word is all that it describes itself to be, and it is, what else do you need? You have here in the word everything necessary for your holiness and therefore for your usefulness. No wonder it is that Jesus prays that these men would be made holy by this holy word. This truth by which they are to be sanctified is the word that Jesus spoke to them during his earthly ministry. We learned that back in verse 14. He prayed, I have given them your word. And what was the the coming result of Jesus giving the word to his disciples? Well, immediately they're put at odds with the world, right? He ends the verse that way. That they are not of the world, therefore they'll face the opposition of the world. But back in verse 13, we also learned that their receiving of this word was the means to their fulfilled joy. That they would have overflowing, abounding joy because of the word given to them. So that helps us understand the, the sanctifying work of the word. So the word in verse 17 sanctifies us. 
The word in verse 14 puts us at odds with the world. The word in verse 13 increases and causes our joy to superabound, fills us up with all joy. So as God sanctifies you in verse 17, he puts you at odds with a world that has rejected his word, verse 14, and he causes your heart to overflow and abound in joy, verse 13. And by the way, your joy is inextricably tied to the word. This is not your joy that Christ puffs up and remakes, reshapes, and gives back to you. This is his joy, he said in verse 13. This is his joy that he gives to them, and he gives it to them. He says in verse 13, look at it. Now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. Why? That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So their joy is to be Christ's joy given to them. How is it given to them? By the word of Christ spoken to them in the world. This word will put them at odds with the world, but it will increase their joy. This means, brother or sister, that your joy is is not dependent upon anything external, outside of you circumstantially. It is entirely dependent upon your Lord and His word purifying you and causing you to abound in joy. But this also teaches us the nature of worldliness, doesn't it? Of ungodliness. What does it mean to to not be sanctified, to be unsanctified? So Christ is praying for them to be further sanctified. What is he praying against? What does he want them to get out of? Well, it's worldliness. It's unholiness. Well, what's the nature of unholiness? What's the nature of being unsanctified? Well, it is tied directly to the Word of God, right? You need only think of Adam and Eve in the garden to know that this connection is there. So unholiness began there, right? The the birth of sin in the garden as Eve was deceived and as Adam willfully rebelled against his creator and maker. What was that issue in that moment? Many things, but what was the core of the issue? Well, they believed the Word of God who told them, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you do, you will surely die. That was God's word on the matter. The serpent comes in and gives his word on the matter, and there is this wrestling in the garden between believing and obeying by faith, walking in light of the word of God, or disbelieving, rebelling, discarding the word, and going their own way. And we know what happened, and we know how that went. We don't even need to get out of our text to know that there's this link between the word of God and your own unholiness. Judas in this text in verse 12 is the example of one who refused to walk in the word of Christ. He rebelled against Christ. He turned from Christ, turned from the word of Christ, didn't believe what Christ had said about himself, left Christ, abandoned Christ, and betrayed Christ over to the authorities. At the heart of the matter was believing or rejecting the word of Christ, right? How did that turn out for Judas? Terribly. Terribly. It sent him into the despair and the misery of self-destruction. It was his own undoing. And this is where the rejection of the word always takes you. It makes you worldly and unholy, and it destroys you. This is the the glorious 
alternative here in this text for true disciples of our Lord, that is to be sanctified. To know the fullness of the joy of Christ in ourselves as we know and have and heed more of the word. This is the work of Christ in us by the means of his word. I wonder, you think about that joy aspect of the word of Christ entering in. You think about the men in these room and the men entrusted with the the message of the gospel to take to the world in the first century, the apostles. Do they express this kind of joy as as they, you know, Christ leaves and they're in the book of Acts and, and then they're writing letters to the church? Do they evidence this superabounding joy as they walk in obedience by faith to the word of Christ in opposition to the world? Well, most certainly they do. First Peter chapter 4, this is his first letter to the church. He's on the eve of his own martyrdom, writing from Rome, facing down the reality of his own crucifixion. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, time out. How does Peter know that? I mean, is Peter just super wise and you know, he's a super saint, he's an apostle, so he just knows that, right? I think Jesus said that, didn't he? Haven't we come across that in John's gospel that the, the servant is not greater than his master? And if they hated me in the world, they'll hate you in the world. So he's telling them what he's heard from his Lord. In different words, same concept. Verse 13, but, don't count it strange, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Beloved, you will never come to that conclusion about persecution and suffering in the world unless you are taught and sanctified by the word of Christ. And Peter says he has been sanctified by it and he now has joy in the face of his trial. And he says to you, you also should abound in Christ's joy because you get to share in his suffering. Well, maybe Peter's just weird, right? I mean, he probably was a little weird, but maybe that's just an anomaly in Scripture, right? No, it's not. John, the apostle, will say in his first letter that he was writing these things that our joy may be complete, 1 John 1, 4. And what did he write about in the rest of the epistle to the church? He wrote about the words of truth which distinguish true believers from false believers. He writes that you may know that you have eternal life, and he lays out for you how you can assess whether or not you're born of God or born of the world. And he says that process of sanctification, of the word of truth applied to your soul by the Spirit, will fulfill your joy. Maybe Peter and John are just weird. Well, how about Paul? Writing from a Roman prison cell. Not sure if he'll get out or if he'll die for the sake of the gospel. Having received the expression of love from the church in Philippi at the hands of Epaphroditus, returns a letter to them and expresses to them overflowing joy because of the gift and the love and the concern they shared with him. Their sanctification was Paul's joy and was their joy as well. And see, beloved, this is the amazing work of God in your sanctification. Your joy is fulfilled as we're made holy by the word of God. 
And if you link your joy to anything other than your sanctification by the truth, you will be sorely disappointed. This is God's work by his prescribed means, and then it is for God's purpose. That's in verses 18 and 19. There's a parallel structure here in these two verses. Jesus speaks in verse 19, first of him, verse 18, first of himself, then of the disciples, and then verse 19, he follows the same pattern, speaks of himself, and then speaks of his disciples. It says in verse 18, I was sent into the world, you sent me, Father, into the world, so have I sent them into the world. In verse 19, he follows that up, parallel thought, I sanctified myself so that they may be sanctified in the truth, or you could translate it truly sanctified, fully, really, actually sanctified. So Jesus points to himself as the mold and these men who are to follow after him to be made in his mold. And what's that mold? It's a mold of being set apart so as to be useful to the Father. John 10, 36, Jesus said that the Father had consecrated him, the Son, had set him apart and sanctified him and sent him into the world. Now in our text, in John 17, Jesus combines those ideas again and says that he himself sanctified himself, set himself apart as he was sent into the world by his Father. You hardly need me to ask the question, but what's he talking about here? What is Jesus referring to? His incarnation, coming into the world as the Son of Man, the Son of God, leaving the right hand of the Father to enter into our existence and take on our nature, adding to divine nature, human nature, this amazing hypostatic union of God and man in one flesh to accomplish the divine purposes of the Godhead established in eternity prior. Jesus came to fulfill his Father's will so as to complete our redemption and magnify God himself for all of eternity. So why did Jesus sanctify himself to come into the world? to accomplish the mission of the Father, to do what the Father had sent him to do. This is then the pattern that his followers are to be marked by. This is exactly how Jesus is praying. He's praying for the Father to consecrate his followers so that they can be useful to him in accomplishing his work and glorifying his name. Beloved, our sanctification happens by Christ, and it happens for Christ. It happens by Christ in that he sets us apart just like he was. And it happens for Christ in that it happens for his service to be useful for him. So we then can conclude, can't we, that the the more truth we have applied to our soul, the more sanctified we will be. We're sanctified by the truth. And then the more sanctified we'll be, the the more useful we are as a servant of the Lord? Isn't this why Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, that's our word, sanctified. Useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, beloved, your sanctification is the foundation for your service. And your service is the point of your salvation. 
to glorify God through serving him, being zealous for the good works he's appointed for you to do. Your sanctification is God's work through God's means, namely the scriptures, by which you're set apart for his purpose. I mentioned to you earlier that there is a singularity of means here in our sanctification, that it is by the word of truth. But I do not mean to communicate that God does not work in our lives through those other things to spur along our sanctification. So he might bring a blessing into your life to get your attention of his kindness, of his love, of his affirmation that you're his child. But that in itself, just by itself, is not sanctifying. He intends through that providential blessing to open your eyes to an aspect of his truth and thereby make you more holy. And in making you more holy, then make you more useful. Maybe it'd be easier to talk about a trial, a moment of difficulty in your life. Those are not in themselves uniquely purifying. In fact, wrongly handled, they can send you down a spiral of further ungodliness. As you respond to the difficulty you face and the fires of those trials burning in your soul force you further away from God if you don't respond in humility, dependent on grace. It's in that moment of of the testing of your faith that, that you need to be purified by truth that now is opened up to you in ways that you didn't see before. And your heart is ready to receive in ways you you couldn't have received before because God now has your attention in ways he never had before. And this is all his providential design. It's, It's a good design by a good father. An eternal wisdom appointing that for you for this hour to open your heart to his purifying word to make you more holy. So practically speaking then, for your own sanctification, you need more of the Word, right? I know, I'm preaching to the choir here. You're you're here on a Sunday morning listening to a guy talk about the Bible for 45 minutes plus. But you need more of the Word. You need to intake the Word in every possible way so that you can be sanctified by that truth in light of all the things going on in life. Those things are not in themselves sanctifying to you, but they are God's tools to get you to the word, which sanctifies you for his service. And then I say to you, if our Lord prayed for your sanctification, then ought you not also pray that way? It's one thing to pray for blessing, for provision, for rescue, for help to make it through None of those things are wrong to pray about. You should pray about those. But at the top of your prayer list, for you and for others, ought be, Father, sanctify me by your truth. Your word is truth. And then put feet to your prayers. Pursue truth in the word and ask the Lord to help you think and love and act in holiness for his glory. To close our time, to make this very practical, I want to give you a case study. Try to be as brief as possible just for your own edification. It is a routine struggle in my heart as I think about this responsibility behind this sacred desk set apart by God for the proclamation of his word. It is a routine struggle for me to think rightly about this moment. To to not have all the, the thoughts of 
all the human realities present in this moment bearing on the preaching of the word. And so I routinely need the Spirit of God to take the Word of God to change my thinking and my loving so that I choose what God would have me choose. So it's a temptation to to turn to human instruments or human methods or human ingenuity to keep people's attention, to make them like you as a proclaimer, a public announcer of God's truth. It's easy attempting to to make this moment about you, to use the word of God, to platform yourself and and make others appreciate you. And and certainly I've been guilty of all of those things and a million more sins behind this sacred desk. But in that struggle through preaching, the, the preaching of the word itself is not sanctifying just by itself as an event. But those struggles have have driven me to the word. And I've asked the Lord, why do you want me to do this? What, does it even work? Do, do these people even care? Do they, do they, are they just being nice to me? They're just putting up with me because they don't have anywhere else to be on a Sunday morning? Like, what is going on? And, and that and a thousand more lies and thoughts run through my head, as I'm sure they would you if you were in my spot. And so you run to the Word and you ask the Lord to show you what the truth of the matter is. And so Paul knew that Timothy would struggle with this and all who follow in his stead would do the same. And so the truth has sanctified me as I have run to the truth in light of the pressure. Are you tracking with me? The the trials, tribulations, difficulties of life do not sanctify you by themselves. But as you run to the Word, specifically looking for truth to help you in that pressure. God sanctifies you. One of those texts of many that God has used to help me change my thinking and trust him is first Tim, or 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 4, 2. 3, 16, you know this text well, and I know this well, but I need it constantly applied to my thinking, my loving, and my obeying. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, frankly, we could stop there, and that's the end of the matter. God said it is profitable to teach the Word of God. How is it profitable? Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then verse chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So God has used the word in my mind and in my heart and in my will to change me. And this is a a routine battle. It's not over. I'll fight it again next Saturday as I try to wiggle out of the responsibility and find a different path. And God will remind me of texts like this that will keep me anchored to faithfulness, hopefully, and obedience. And that's what God intends through our sanctification, that we be obedient and thereby useful. Now, I'll just give you an example from my life so that hopefully you connect it to something in your life and see how God intends to use the word to accomplish his work to sanctify you for his purpose. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, thank you for your power at work by your word moved by your spirit in our soul.
to make us holy. We ask that you would do that in each of us, in the roles and responsibilities you've called us to uphold in this life. Father, help us to be sanctified by the truth that we might be useful to serve you all our days. I praise you for these dear saints who have loved you so well and have been sanctified in the truth. You've, prayed, you've answered this prayer over and over again in our history. And so we ask for you to continue that which you have faithfully done. Make us more holy so that we might be more useful so that you might receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>